I think that's the best piece of advice we've actually. <laughs> I, I love all of our previous guests. Absolutely love them, but I feel like that was the best piece of advice. Yeah, but the, but the others are smashed when they come on, right? The, that is true. This, this looks like water. Uh, it could be uh, It could. It could be. Disclaimer number one, guests and hosts drink on this show, and we ask that if you join us, you be of legal age and you drink responsibly. Number two, if you want to know about check size, stage, similar questions, this is the wrong podcast for you. On Drinks with a VC, we're all about digging a little bit deeper and getting to know the person behind the investment decisions. Hello, everybody. My name is Vic LaQuara. I am the managing director of Seed Fund Green Cow Venture Capital. And I am joined by my friend and co-hostess with the mostess, Bree Hansen of Berkland. They provide CFO services to startups. Definitely check them out. Hi, Bree. Hi, Vic. So before we introduce our guest, I want to address some nasty rumors that are circulating about how all VCs are total lushes that are incapable of having a conversation without the great icebreaker that is alcohol. That is totally untrue. It's unfounded. Uh, and to prove that, this episode will be the virgin edition of Drinks with a VC. Yes. Are you, are you ready? What are you drinking? I have aloe vera juice today, something very healthy. Got it. How about yourself? I'm I've got the most VC thing I could think of, LaCroix. Very VC. Yeah, very VC. Uh, Congratulations on outdoing yourself once again. Thank you. I try. If I can wear a vest, that's (laughs) what I'm bringing to the equation. Well, it's not only our first virgin drinks with a VC, but it's also the first time we feature someone from the New York ecosystem. And he also happens to be our first Londoner that we've had on the podcast. Um, I actually first met John back in 2013 when I had my own startup. He has been known to be one of the kindest VCs um, when it comes to founder advice and mentorship. And I was definitely um, a recipient of his wisdom. My father actually had the pleasure of working with him at Cornerstone On Demand when John became one of their first institutional investors. Um, And my dad does not like VCs and he really likes John. So that tells you something right there. (laughs) (laughs) He calls them vulture capitalists. Um, And then when I was again introduced to John through his lovely daughter, Katie, um, she and I were able to work together. Um, John is one of the partners at FF Ventures in New York. He has an incredible portfolio with Omaze, Indiegogo, Better Work, Surfair, He started his career, obviously, in London um, at Arthur Anderson and Goldman Sachs, was transferred to New York and fell in love with the city, moving his family there. He has become a part of the foundation of New York VC, a mentor and inspiration to the new generation of VC. So it's my pleasure to introduce John Frankel. Well, thanks for having me. I think we should just end the show there (laughs) because anything I say will take this downhill from that. You know, it's, it's, it's just going downhill from that. Um, you know, so, uh, well, thank you for having me on the show. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, look, this, this virgin episode could actually have not have come at a better time for all of us, particularly Bree and I, who spent the whole weekend, uh, watching soccer and it was not kind to our livers. Um, and (laughs) you know, God bless our significant others who put up with certainly me 
Um, mostly as, you. Mostly me. Uh, <laughs> as a Londoner, John, how are you doing after the the tough England loss in the Euro Cup final? Well, they they told me you you do an incredible amount of research on this show. Yeah. Um, however, you didn't pick up the fact that I I um uh, I, I don't vicariously follow sports, mm. so I didn't know the game was on until yeah. Sunday morning, um, yeah. and maybe Friday. Yeah. Uh, but so uh, it's fine. I mean, look, last time I watched soccer was in 1966 when George Best. Yeah. Uh, oh, so you know, I, I was pretty young back then. Yeah. But um, uh, so I, I know that it's um, it was much anticipated that they that Britain would win. Yeah. I think we lost on penalty knockouts or something, yeah. which which yeah. to me just feels like it's dumb. I mean, that's like, okay, we can't play the game and get it to an end. So let's play tiddlywinks and see who wins. You know, it it, it doesn't feel to me that it's really a match of skills against it as to whether someone, you know, uh, standing in a goal can stop a ball coming in. Anyway, whatever. Um, So, so no, I I really wasn't following it that much. And I, I apologize. I should have watched the game just so I could have a better answer. Note to self, John Oliver is a soccer fan. John Frankel, not so much. John was too busy studying in college, Vic. John went to a new school college at Oxford and studied math, logic, and philosophy. Not quite sure about logic, but you are definitely our first philosophy major. What drew you to philosophy? Oh, well, that's very simple. Um, I've always been a, to use... Um, probably an old term. I've always been severely right-brained. People, are, you know, in this analogy, people are left-brained, are very logical. They build up arguments. They come to conclusion. I come to conclusions, and then people say, "How do you get there?" And I go, "Hummer the hummer the hum." You know, like let me make something up that'll be a nice story that will stop you asking that question. So, you know, I, you know, prior to university, I would on, you know, I'd have math problems. I go, "Well, the answer is this," and they go. Well, where are your workings? I go, what do you mean workings? That's the answer. And they didn't like that. Um, So, you know, I had the opportunity to get into Oxford. I kind of talked my way in. Um, And I wanted to study mathematics and philosophy because I could do math very easily. Mm. It just bores the hell out of me. So I don't enjoy solving math problems. I can just do it. And I couldn't write. And I came to the conclusion that if I studied philosophy, I might learn how to write. And it also might help me uh, express these stories, these explanations for other people in more logical constructs mm-hmm. so they could understand it. Uh, and so I did that. And o- Oxford's a strange place. When I went, you, you went for three years, for 24 weeks, three eight-week semesters. You had one exam uh, at the end of the three years, and that was it. So there were no grades. <laughs> there was no continuous testing, and you you got to work with some very bright people. And if you didn't want to study, and I had friends who didn't want to study, they studied for three weeks for finals, and they got a you know a good degree, and went on to become an actuary or whatever they wanted to do, and. If you wanted to study, you could study and you could do things in between. And I, you know, I did, 
I did probably some stuff in between. I managed to get um, uh, uh, one of the leading uh, philosophy um, professors uh, in the world at the time happened to teach at New College, but didn't teach undergraduates. But I managed to convince him to teach me for a semester. And that was fun because you, know, you work for that one, right? And I remember there was a, a particular problem um, with Russell. I got to him, I just hit this sort of intellectual cul-de-sac. I couldn't really work my way out. So I go in, I give him the essay and, um, you know, Michael Dammit, and he, he had shock, shock white hair with an orange streak across here. Oh, which, wow. Which was, was, I mean, you know, he, I mean, he wasn't a punk rocker. <laughs> we called him at the time, uh, but he was a chain smoker. And you'd ask him probably, very interesting, and then drag his cigarette and nicotine stain his hair. So oh you know, my I go up, I give him an essay, he's reading it, and I go like, oh, great one. I got to this problem, like, what's the answer? I mean, this guy knew Russell. Yeah, this guy, this guy was, you know, at the manor during the Second World War, working with von Neumann. Um, on the Enigma problem. And he kind of like, he goes, yes, yes, very interesting. I've often wondered about that myself. And so that was, that was the highlight of my time at Oxford where, you know, I was equally flummoxed with one of the best, best minds on philosophy. So, so that's why I read philosophy, mathematics and philosophy, and spent a um, considerable amount of time on logic, which is a really interesting intellectual cul-de-sac, but a good one. I've read that philosophy majors make really good business people because it helps them think independently and understand the human condition. How has that, did, does that like strike a chord with you at all? That sounds like something a philosophy major would say. <laughs> um, you get to know the structures of arguments and how people have thought about things in the past. The interesting thing about philosophy is almost all science was born out of philosophy. Physics used to be part of philosophy. Chemistry used to be. And as they've born out, it's sort of reduced down and down to um, uh, the pure intellectual part of it. Uh, I thought it was good training. But, of course, you know, I come out of Oxford and I go, I don't know what I want to do in life. So I go to the careers office and they say, hmm, thinking about your particular situation stuff, you should go and become a chartered accountant. Little did I know that they said that very same sentence to 80% of the people who came to them. So I, you know, I went to Arthur Anson, a now defunct accounting firm, but was one of the big uh, five in the day, uh, qualified as a chartered accountant. And then about four years in, looked around and go, okay, I can do this, but like, it's kind of boring. And the people doing this are kind of boring. So why am I here? And I applied to six different places. I got four different job offers. And the least one known to me and the one offering the least money was this strange American firm uh, called Goldman Sachs. And I go and talk to a friend of mine uh, at our friends. And I go, look, I got these offers. Watch it. He goes, that's the one you should I go, but it's the least money. He goes, trust me. It's a good break. <laughs> So I, so, I, so I joined uh, Goldman. I was there for 21 years. I did about a dozen jobs uh, and had a blast. That's awesome. I know you had um, worked with your dad in retail when you were growing up. Uh, he was an entrepreneur. Um, you want to tell us about that? 
So my father, um, uh, who unfortunately passed away uh, 21 years ago, um, but my father grew up, he was born in 1926, the time of the general strike in the UK. Um, that was probably not formative to him. He always wanted to be a photographer. And his father wouldn't let him. He said, you have to go into business. And so he started with his um, uh, brother-in-law, a menswear business. And from the age of 12 through to about the age of 18, every weekend, every Saturday rather, and every vacation, I worked in my father's business. And, you know, from initially the back room, uh, putting tickets on, and I still have holes in my thumbs, I think, putting those damn tickets on, uh, pricing tickets on goods, to selling in the stores, to going to Paris for trade shows, um, and the like. Uh, and then he, um, there was a, a company called Davils, um, which was like Baskin Robbins, that they had 32 flavors, not 31, therefore definitely wasn't a copy. And he had a franchise of that in a couple of locations. I moved to that because I moved from being paid um, uh, £2.50 a day to something closer to £20 a day. And I go like, well, okay, I can do the math. Um, so I did that for a couple of years. And then and then when I went to Oxford, I always interned at different places, um, uh, which was interesting. I, I, I interned at... Uh, a place called uh, Scottish and Newcastle Beer South Limited that had five beers and 16 brands. So, you know, it was a really good, it was in the marketing department, so a really good introduction to how marketing works and, um, you know, the, the separation between perception and reality of, uh, of consumer product. So, yeah, yeah. So, you know, until I left Goldman in 08, from the age of 12, I'd basically worked um, uh, for the whole, you know, every day of my life, as it were, which, you know, so I took a few months off when I left Goldman. Wow. So speaking of marketing and entrepreneurship, uh, your father was known, uh, we hear, for popularizing a certain type of T-shirt. Is it? Is that right? And 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 one one moment before you do that, I think it's getting a little bit hot in here. Oh wow! Oh wow! Just, just yeah. going to Oof. unveil. So hot. For all of the listeners and not viewers uh, on YouTube of the podcast, Bree and I are wearing these ridiculously the silly. The tuxedo T-shirt. Yes. Um, uh, we had a designer who designed it and didn't copyright it. And I wish they had, because if I had 10 cents for every one of those that exist, yeah. how wonderful would that be? No, it, it it was a lovely, I mean, you, yeah, we, we, we're at the point of fashion where, you know, things come in and out and stuff. But in the 60s and 70s, it was a great time for creativity. And this notion of taking something that is fundamentally casual and making it appear to be formal is um, it's hilarious. And I thought it was, you know, it, it was a great design and uh, yeah. Yeah. So, so yes, you, you, you got that absolutely right. 
Well, you have a good sense of humor. Um, this is the man who likes Dude, Where's My Cars is one of his favorite movies. So you definitely have a good that sense and the, of humor. That and the interview. The yes. Interview. Oh, lovely. <laughs> Classic. Both. Both good ones. And you're also, so you're also a family man. Uh, and you have a upcoming trip um, to Disney World. Uh Right. So, so let, let's take this a little bit seriously. Yeah. Um, I think that as you go through life yeah. in your 20s and 30s, you should be respectful of your parents. Yeah. You should also be respectful of your future self. And you should say the person who's going to inhabit this body in 20, 30, 40 years, yeah. let me be respectful of that and, and the life they're going to inhabit. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I ended up getting married at a young age, about four. And <laughs> now I was 22 when I got married. But I, I have a belief that you need to think about your future self and how to be respectful of So mm-hmm. one of the things we, we did when we got married, you know, you get married young, um, you you do things like having kids young. Sure. And we, we had a bunch of kids. We, we have five and they're all married. So we have 10. Um, uh, and we've not formally, but kind of like informally adopted someone else. So we have 12. Um, but we, we really like family. Mm-hmm. And we, we've told our kids, you know, marry young, have a bunch of kids. And I think it's a really good edict and it's counter. To everything people say, oh, go and get money first, go and get your career. And by which point, hopefully you've frozen your eggs so that you can actually have kids. Good. You know, I mean, it's it gets more difficult as you get older and more exhausting. Not the having of, well, yes, the, I'm just going to say not the conceiving, but the having, but you know what I mean. Um, uh, it's, it's so I'm blessed. I'm, you know, I'm in my, I'm 60 and I've got, eight grandkids, a couple more on the way. Um, and, and that's just wonderful. And that was kind of what I wanted to have when I was in my 20s, but it wouldn't happen unless when I was in my 20s, I was respectful of that. I don't drink a lot of alcohol because I, don't, I think it puts a toll on the system. I didn't exercise until 40 on the belief that, it, you know, if you wear out your joints, you can't go running and you can't do other things. So, you know, I think in these sort of long decade-like views, in the same way it comes to VC. In VC, you're not investing to make a trade today or tomorrow. You're not investing for every day for it to be better. There's a lot of volatility, uh, just a lot of volatility with kids. But, um, but you know, it's the long-term benefits that you're really looking for. So... To answer that is, you know, we're we're going we're going to Disney with with a bunch of the kids, um, you know, and I have my I brought my Disney hat, so I will share this with you. Lovely. This oh, is my, I love it. My Tigger hat, Fantastic. and um, uh, this is a classic. Yeah, it, oh. you can't see, but the fur it actually is fur covered. <laughs> Plush. That's fantastic. Yeah. We typically have a VC unboxing segment. Uh, the boxes were opened already. We hope that you get some use out of uh, a couple of those items in there. There's a a Yoda hat. Uh, I yeah, believe. You really, you really think I'm going to get use out of this? 
Oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah. That's absolutely. for your, your Christmas, you know. Uh, Star Wars is now part of Disney. So we figured, uh, yeah. but we thought it would go well with the wig. I, yes. I appreciate that. It is it very also, cold. And, it also uh, goes by Ewok hat. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because, yeah, this, this, this one is particularly useful. Um, though I think it may be a little hot in the... Uh, in Disney and in, uh, in uh, Orlando, but we'll see. Do you <laughs> yeah. pull those out during um, founder pitches? Uh, LP pitches as well. Oh, LP okay, pitches. Great. <laughs> <laughs> He's got a prop box back there. He just pulls them on. <laughs> so let's step back a little bit. Uh, I'd love to learn a little bit more about your approach to investing and, and how I think one of the things that we try and do on this show is is really get to understand and know the person behind the investment decisions and what informs their decision making. Um, it sounds like your father and your family generally has a huge impact on um, your philosophy and in investing and and maybe even just the entrepreneurship, right? And that drive. Uh, what are you looking for when you see a company early early stages? It doesn't reduce to a list. Yeah. If it reduced to a list, it'd be very boring, I think. And yeah. I think if you drew up a list, every company we invest in fails on, you know, three or four items, just different ones. Sure. Um, we're looking for things with a massive tap. We're looking for things where we're passionate about the idea. Uh, we believe the team has domain expertise, a special way to make it happen. And we're looking for companies where we think we can be additive. When we, and there are many different flavors of how to be a VC. Sure. We're not a, here's a check, call us in 10 years when you go public type of VC. We're highly engaged. We lead rounds. We sit on boards. Mm -hmm. uh, we run two to 300 events a year on platform. Uh, you know, one way might be to think of an example. So, you know, we, we invested in a company um, eight years ago called Owlet. And, you know, I have, I, I just happen to have on my shelf, this is what the Owlet baby sock. Yep. Well, Owlet, smart sock. There you oh, go. Very cool. There it is. So, so the premise that we invest in is the same premise today, which is there's about 4 million babies born in the U.S. each year. About 4,000 a year die from heart or lung complications. Monster babies don't die. And, you know, when, when we first invested, you know, it was a circuit board and some um, uh, surgical bandage. I mean, it was like, and, you know, we went through, what about false positives? What about false negatives? Will parents adopt? What's the right price point? All of these things that you do at a seed round. Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, they're going public uh, through a DSPAC. Mm -hmm. um, uh, the votes today, so hopefully they're going public through a DSPAC, um, and they should trade on Friday under ticker OWLT. This is one of the most amazing companies I've ever seen, right here, right now. And you know they're going public at a billion valuation, and the billion valuation were up like thirty nine fold, which is mm -hmm. nice. And if it's only worth half a billion, won't it be up? You know, 19 and a half fold. But, you know, let's, let's put the valuation aside for the moment. This is a company that's only ever raised about $45 million. Wow. They should have $300 million plus or minus as part of this process. Mm -hmm. 
they have an 18 times lifetime value to cost acquisition. If you run the model just off the SOC, then you you know you can get to a billion dollars of revenue by 2025, which is what they're guiding. Well, and it yeah. saves lives. And it saves lives. But here's the thing: this is what's really interesting. You know, I like to say when you get a baby as a new parent, no one gives you an operating manual. Outlets building the operating manual. So they have the sock, they have the camera, they have the SaaS product to help parents teach to sleep. They're talking about introducing a smart humidifier and a smart bed. Now you have a whole ecosystem that runs around your baby and really helps you as a parent manage all of the aspects of a newborn and then an older baby, you know, coming in. They're getting FDA approval of these products, et cetera. So sure. it's, it's a story which is really now just getting going. Well, now they're going to have real capital to make it work. Yeah. And there's there's also the additional peace of mind. I've had, mm-hmm. you know, many friends that have had babies and their first thought is, I'm going to kill this thing. <laughs> no, I mean, look, I, I, I would go before going to bed every night when our kids were young, I would go and check they were still breathing. Still breathing. I don't know why. But, you know, it's kind of like, I, you know, it's like it's what you can do. Now you can do a lot more. And what I, what I love about this team is they're just driven in this direction to save babies' lives. Yeah. They've got huge amounts of data that comes out of this, and the tens of thousands of babies are monitored every night, they're going to research universities to look for patterns, to then build AI to indicate and ring an alarm before there's a problem. And I, th- I, th- it's, it, I feel like it's the early days of this story, not the late days. Yeah. And to give you a sense on that, um, Rick Sherlin was the analyst at Goldman Sachs who covered Microsoft. And I remember him telling me a story that when they, Goldman Sachs priced the IPO, the bank who priced it came to him and said, this is the high price mm. on this stock. I cannot believe people paid that amount, that multiple on this. Oh, my God. You know. And so these stories, once they hit the public markets, if there's legs to them, and why wouldn't a company that sells a soft not have legs? Um, <laughs> that, <laughs> uh, then, the dad jokes. Exactly. <laughs> I love it. If it, if I would not have legs, then um, it, this can just be the beginning of, of what I think will be a Peloton type story. I, yeah. I think there's, there's, there's real opportunity and it's exciting. A couple of things I wanted to uncover from that, <laughs> no puns intended, uh, that I wanted to uncover from that. So the first piece is um, runs a little contrary to a lot of seed funds that you come, you start to see coming out now, which are saying, hey, we're all about data-driven insights that are informing our investment decisions, uh, metrics, 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 metrics. And I think what you're talking about is is the intangibles that uh, founders bring to the table, their experience with the pain points that they're trying to solve, et cetera. Uh, how do those two things kind of balance in your mind? So I did mention I'm severely right-brained. Yeah. So I'll try and give you an answer there. I, I think that when you're dealing with um, Series A and Series B, you can turn around 
to your associate and say, go and look for the Series Seed or Series A companies. Meet this idea that's exciting me at the moment. I'm excited about drones. Sure. I'm a Series B investor. Go and find me all the Series A drone companies, and I'll line them up, and I can run metrics, and I'll tell you which is the right one. I mean, even today, there's very little competition for Outlook, right? It's very, very few companies are taking this connected nursery approach, if any. Hmm. But back then, go and find me all the companies that haven't been formed yet that are going after this space, and let me evaluate these teams before they even have products in my. I don't think there's the data to do it mm-hmm. um, when you're at the C stage. And and look, one thing that's unusual about us, you know. We're raising our SIG fund right now. It's still a seed fund. We like the seed space. We think it's a space where you can get really high returns on capital, high multiples, um, uh, with you know v- very good um, balance between alpha and beta for LPs. Mm. And we like it, even though we're wrong so often. Oh, God, we're wrong. We lose so much money. It's, I mean, it's it's embarrassing how wrong we are with companies. But about half of our seed funded companies go on to raise a Series B, right. which is about five times the average in the industry. Right. So we're we're wrong a lot. We just want to be less wrong um, um, than everyone else. Do you think there is a founder DNA that you look for when evaluating deals? It, 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 every deal is idiosyncratic. We like domain expertise because yeah, we're yeah. not the domain expert in X, whatever company's going after X. You know, we just we just invested today in a company uh, in the privacy space, which is a space I've loved a long time. I think is very important. Um, but we really like the team. They're very um, they're very buttoned down, very domain ex- experts around what they're doing. Um, you know, on something that's consumer-facing, having some skills and knowing around how to acquire customers is useful. Um, uh, generally, sales skills are useful. And we we obviously like um, engineering talent in-house, not fully outsourced. We think it's it's a key aspect that needs to be there. Um, but it, it, it's, it's, it's difficult to tell you. I mean, I, I'll tell you, with the Outlet team, we really liked that they were Mormons out of Salt Lake out of Salt Lake City. We didn't, you know, we, at the time there weren't that many startups in Salt Lake City. That didn't worry us, but we felt that they would have a real passion to focus around this um, this particular problem they were solving, and obviously, you know, through themselves and their cousins and the like. Lots of uh, babies to test them. Yeah, lots of kids, no drinking. I mean, what could what could go right? Everything. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you put it that way. <laughs> hey, I went to school at BYU, so I'm very familiar with the Mormon culture. So um, they're, they they do make good entrepreneurs. So Salt Lake City now is sort of bustling. Yeah. Um, yeah. But but I'm just giving that as an example. I, you know, people ask me, what's your favorite company? I'm like, I, it's like I have 75 children, you know, <laughs> you know, it's like, um, but that's one of mine at the moment because, you know, the votes, the vote is today for them to uh, uh, go through DSPAC. Yeah. What's your opinion on SPACs? Obviously, they've been around for a lot longer than I think people have been privy for and privy to. 
but they've really um, seen just a huge burst in activity over the last two years in particular. Uh, what's your feeling on, you know, the SPAC um, landscape? And, and I think it's a part of the architecture, very constructive. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and there are a couple of reasons to that. One is, you know, I was at Goldman and then the last 11 years I was on the sales and trading floors, equity research salesperson covering hedge funds in New York. But basically I saw every company that went public. I remember trying to pitch to institutions, trying to hedge funds, trying to convince them this company called eBay might have something really big going on. Mm-hmm. And it took so much energy because like, you know, they could, but, but we saw every company that came through and, you know, on the dry run and sort of take them public. In those days, Goldman four days a week would take, a company public um, raising 50, 70, $100 million at a $800 million billion valuation. Today, they won't get out of bed below $6 billion unless it's a biotech. So I think there's been this umbrella that's created. As the large firms have got bigger, mm-hmm. they need bigger checks to open up their intellectual town. At the same time, I think the pendulum up to some point last year swung fully as far as it's going to go from single stocks to ETFs. And I think that's swinging back. Hmm. Um, And, you know, I don't think Owler, I mean, Owler will be a small mark cap stock of 1 billion, billion point, uh, 1.4 billion. So it's not indexes and not where it's going to be. It's going to be Mothers and fathers who go, oh, my God, I can actually own 100 shares of Owlet here. And I think that is going to increasingly happen. They're going to go, oh, my God, this is like, you know, Fitbit for my baby, Peloton for my baby. I love the brand. I want to be on the journey with them. And I think that dynamic will will really happen, particularly, you know, they have a really high net promoter score. So I, I can see that kind of thing happening. And so I think for certain brands, it makes a lot of sense. Um, in addition, just pure number of un- unicorns, and this can be some beta bleeding out, but the last three years, we've had over 100 unicorns a year coming. And this year, mm-hmm. so far, over 200. Yeah. Wow. So there's just a ton of companies at that cusp. And if SPACs make it easier because you get the going public bit out the way first and then the pricing second, sure. Um that to me is really interesting. So I think it's a permanent part of the architecture. Yeah. The disappointing thing is that everybody wants to say a, it's a SPAC stock means something. It really doesn't mean anything. Mm-hmm. Um, there can be some concept stocks which have no revenue that go public through a SPAC. And you know, that's a sign of maybe some excess because you know, and then there can be ones which are fundamentally driven and you know, I fit into the, the latter, not the former. But Look, capital markets are capital markets. And I think the opportunity to fund entrepreneurship, to allow people to bring new ideas to the table is a key part of this economy. And I think it's essential. And I think we've actually had some ossification because the the gatekeepers to going public, the large barge bracket banks, have got in the way. So I think we're going to see a lot of fun companies come public, uh, ones which I think can be very real and significant and ones where the people taking them public will say, that's probably the high price we'll ever see in that stock. <laughs> and they'll end up being another Microsoft or whatever. And I think that's wonderful. 
I, on the flip side of that, though, do you believe that, um, you know, there are a lot of companies that really shouldn't go public, right? That's, right. Yeah. Yes. A, a, I mean, a lot of them are going to fail, right? Yes. Yes. I mean, there's a lot of companies going public. There's a lot of crypto projects that shouldn't get funded. Yeah. There's a lot of private companies that shouldn't raise rounds. Yeah. yeah. I, but, so- but, but, but let the crowd decide. Let yeah. people decide what they want to do. Don't yeah. let it be a bunch of bureaucrats. Right. Often, you know, I think people say, look, the IPO process is long. There are a lot of gatekeepers, as you said, but there's also some level of transparency that a company goes through uh, during about, about during once the process. A, about once, and I'm not picking on Goldman. Nope. This could apply to Morgan Stanley or whatever. About once every decade, Goldman takes a company public, which goes bankrupt 12 months later. Yeah, I mean, so yes, uh, but but look, everything has a price, and okay. people will work work out what they want to do. If you're too conservative, you just don't go public, and you then you don't give people the choice and the opportunity to participate. You know, and the company doesn't get the opportunity, the ability out of that at stage, its ability to have you know two to three hundred million dollars to really build out. It's it's a wonderful thing. And I think there's a great team and a great opportunity. So I'm, you know, I'm excited for what they can do. If Goldman said, we'll come back in three years, uh, you know, they'd take more dilution, private capital, uh, but it wouldn't, be, it wouldn't be the same thing. And they wouldn't have the same brand-enhancing brand aspect of being public. Mm-hmm. So you know, I presume people are adults and they'll form an opinion. I think there should be as much transparency and provision of information as possible. Um, you know, but like it, like any other financial markets, any other markets, there'll be bad actors that do bad things. You know, yeah. just just be careful. Wanted to take a step back. You're a family man, uh, and presumably you've got lots of grandchildren that are you know in school, um, you know, and in this educational system in the United States. Uh, what do you think the state of education is? And, and you know, we've got VCs on one end uh, that are very outspoken about how children shouldn't even mess with college. Uh, you know, don't even spend your time on that. Uh, and then maybe people that are more traditionalists, where do you line up in that, in that spectrum? Lots of thoughts jump to mind. Let, let's let's start with this, which is when when I was a kid and I had two older brothers, my parents bought a copy of Encyclopedia Britannica for us so that we would have access to knowledge to help us with our education. And my brother had to do a... Um, an essay on airplanes and he used it and the teacher called him in afterwards and said, uh, I'm not sure this is your work. He goes, what do you mean? He goes, well, you wrote the whole essay. And then the last sentence said, see balloons. <laughs> so he had included the hyperlink uh, within it. Uh, look, you know, you know, this is some of human knowledge. It's not just that I have it, all kids have it, but people in the middle of Africa, and, you know, other places which you'd consider to be disadvantaged have it. I think you have to accept 
now there's been a leveling of a playing field with regard to access to information. And what is most important is someone's ability to have the desire to be curious, to be able to do work, to get to an answer they want to get. Um, you know, as I said, I, I ended up going to Oxford um, uh, and I've told the story so many times, I'm, I'm not going to tell it here, but I, I literally talked my way into one of the best universities in the world. I said, you know, and it's, it, was, it was a blast, but one of my biggest takeaways I got from that was, well, I'm as smart as everyone to my left and my right. So it was a huge confidence booster. Mm. And I think confidence is a real important skill in life. You know, in sales, you say the willingness to ask for a trade, but it, it covers a lot of things. A belief mm -hmm. in yourself and your ability to get things done is probably 60% of solving a problem. Yeah. It, it's, and so I got a lot of that. Um, I think that when you look at university, it is sold as if it's a um, homogenous product. It really isn't. It's heterogeneous. Mm -hmm. It is very difficult, different if you go to one of the highly academic universities versus one that not. I think that government subsidy has created hopefully unintended consequences of people going and getting degrees that don't help them in life, where they go to university and they don't take advantage of the academic aspects there. Mm. And they graduate with enormous amounts of debt, um, which helps subsidize the college, but doesn't necessarily help the individual. So I don't like that. I think for some individuals, four years of university is too much and stifling. Um, uh, and I also think that the U.S. educational system is very much about demarcate. Here's the box, and this is how this box works. Here's the box, and this is how this works. And um, that can be stifling for folks who are a little bit more creative. The, 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 the British education system I went through was very specialized. So normally you'd go and read math or you'd read philosophy or you'd read English or you'd read classics. And I, to, for me, doing something across two, three disciplines was about as broad as you get. There was no modular studies, right. as, in, as you'd say in England, referring to how things done here, where you have to do all these different subjects. And I think within modular studies, you, you've got a creeping amount of things which are not academic, where people pretend that they are. And so I think that dilutes the education people get. Now that doesn't, I'm, you know, it's, it, it, you know, I, I put an emphasis. I could have gone to Oxford, bummed around for three years and, you know, worked for the last couple of months, my finals, but I wouldn't have gotten education. Mm -hmm. So I think it's up to the individual of how they choose that. And if they want to get an education by reading books and learning languages themselves or, you know, leveraging the sum of human knowledge they have, great. But I think it's all about curiosity and intensity. Um, uh, and so 
I think that's important. And then the last thing is, I think there's a much more casual aspect within the work environment about what education people have before coming into the workplace. Um, uh, and that's in part because of the dynamics of the workplace. And I think it's in part because uh, people think it's a new concept that folks can succeed without having gone, having gone to you know, a highfalutin university. And in fact, the generation before at Goldman, again, I'm just happy with my experience, there were a lot of people who ended up being partners uh, who might have started in, um, you know, with non-traditional backgrounds, whether they're from the mailroom or other places. Um, and I think people tried to professionalize that in the 80s and 90s. And I think we're, we're coming a little bit to the other side of that, of that theme where you can do really well in, and people, I think, are being given the opportunity to do well based on how they perform, not based on the letters they have after their name or the, the you know the degrees they happen to have taken. I, I keep looking back to this questionnaire that we had you fill out um, prior to the taping of this, and a question that we often ask is sort of, you know, uh, what is what is the um, superpower. Uh, you know, what is, what is your superpower? And you, you mentioned, uh, you know, how you think. Um, but that was also part and parcel when we asked you what, what your strangest talent was, you said, listening. Um, and then to bookend that and go even further, you said, okay, what is the one thing that people misunderstand about you? And you said, how I think. I want I, I want to peel back the layers of that starting with, I think, the listening aspect and how important it is, obviously, as a VC to be really good at listening. But can you can you peel back the layers a little bit for us and, and tell us what you meant by that? It is incredibly difficult, incredibly exhausting to do. But you only learn by listening. You don't learn by telling. You learn nothing in a conversation unless you hear what the other person is saying. And you don't hear what they're saying unless you do things like reflecting back and understanding and taking it in places where they want to take it, not where you want to take it. Am I good at this? No, I'm terrible, but I try. There's a Zen to everything. We had this conversation before. Yeah. There's a Zen to everything and there's a Zen to listening. And the whole notion of this is you're on a path of improvement and I got a long way to improve on this. Yeah. But I think, I think it's important. And if this doesn't sound contradictory to a salesperson, it's very important to listen. Your job is not to read a script. Your job is to work out what the person needs and to help them with that. Mm. Um, so I think active listening is very important. I think it's, I think it's, 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 it's an important part of everything. And, you know, it's an important part with family, born part of work, with career, with friends. Um, and it ties into empathy and it ties into everything else. Uh, and I'm sure there are many people listening to this know me go like, he doesn't listen. But I try. <laughs> I try. We've talked at least two times about how I think. I'm a bit like a left-handed tennis player in solving problems. And so that can frustrate other people. And so I've, I've learned to try and slow that down at times and let other people 
get there on their own or get there in their own way um, because people don't really want to own your answers. They want to own their answers. And so let other people own the solution. Mm. You don't have to own the solution. You just want the solution to happen. I think that's the best piece of advice we've actually, (laughs) I I love all of our previous guests. Absolutely love them. But I feel like that was the best piece of advice. Yeah, but but the others are smashed when they come on, right? That is true. This looks like water. Uh, It could be. uh, It could, it could be. Uh, Well, whatever you're drinking, I want more of it. Uh, Speaking of your. Why did you send me this? Oh, well, we thought you were. Or is it Fu Manchu? (laughs) <laughs> either one uh, we thought you were a fan of the zany uh and the ridiculous at times and i think that's coming across in terms of your humor and not just the dad jokes but because of the family that you're surrounded by i feel like it's very easy um as someone who has four nieces and nephews from my sister or five nieces and nephew oh my gosh from my sister four from my from my wife's side of the family um, I, it's so easy to be the zany one around kids because they're, they're so, uh, imaginative and excited about everything. So we just thought you'd have a lot of fun with the, the no, dress up. Absolutely. Yeah. absolutely. Um, you are, it's crazy because I was reading about the chartered accountant side of you, et cetera. Uh, and then there's this other side of you that uh, you are a little, you know, you get out there and you aren't afraid to try new things. Uh, I I think you said that one of the craziest things that you've done uh, was uh, a sailing or not a sailing. uh, I think I said abseiling. Abseiling, which is like repelling. I I don't know if I have the right term. So so what I actually did, there's this, crazy guy who organizes these events uh, for VCs and other folks in startups, um, um, Francisco Dow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Francisco's great. Yeah, but he's insane. And so, like he said, let's do a trip where we all go to um, South America and we'll, we'll do things like we'll have bags of white powder that we'll pretend to smuggle around the country. I'm like, <laughs> no. Um, so anyway, we, we, we were on this trip, and he managed to convince a whole bunch of people to jump off of an arch with a rope tied to them so they could swing underneath, because he saw a video of this, <laughs> right? I think it's subsequently been banned. Uh, but, you know, so I, I was like, no, I, I ain't doing that one. Yeah. Um, but but there were VCs who did, you know, folks who did this, good people I know, yeah. and the people who took them up there had never done it themselves. So they had the rope and it was tied down. And one guy, like, said, well, so what do I do? He says, well, you just walk off. So he walked off. So the swing... Right, which is meant to swing, it was yeah. boom. Oh my gosh. Right. Eventually oh. they worked out trial and error, send two VCs ahead of you. They rent that you're meant to jump off so you can get some swing so you don't get that snap in your back. Yeah. Anyway, so yeah, I didn't do that. Um <laughs> he just jumped off. 
<laughs> oh, step up. I mean, like it's it, like, what, there was not a bungee cord. It was a rope. It was a no give. No give. <laughs> and hopefully tied at the top. So, yeah. So, no, I don't do that. Um, but what I did do, uh, we, and I checked both sides, uh, we did some, uh, like, dragging yourself across a canyon. Mm. Which was pretty good, pretty scary. Yeah, yeah, it's that's um, scary enough. Yeah, I also learned to snowboard in my mid forties, which I which was pretty good. I mean, if, if are you a skier or a snowboarder or neither? Uh, so my mom was a big skier and hurt her knee, and apparently, I, I have no recollection of being a very good skier. But apparently, I was on the slopes, and I have now removed those memories from from my um brain uh and they've been replaced by fear and uh also scary situations where i'm going to call out a college friend of mine uh chris felton who's on the vassar ski team he's like vic let's go snowboarding i haven't snowboarded you haven't snowboarded you know it'll be a completely different experience for you when we go up on this mountain and it's the kitty mountain right we're taking the bunny slopes and i'm like hey I can do this. I can, I can snowboard with the best of them. And, uh, and then he said, okay, great. Let's graduate. Let's move up a little bit. And so he puts me on this lift and little did he tell me that it was a double black diamond. Uh, and I spent the majority of the trip down on my ass face, knees, just everything, but the board, I got down to the bottom and I looked at Chris and I was like, Chris, you're an asshole. Never again. And well, he, uh, he was, and that, but but you should do it again. So yeah. so you know, I had skied from an early age, yeah. and I got to the point where you know, in, in my you know nowadays when you ski, your legs are like this far apart. But in my day, they were this way. So the sure. skis clatter. So you have to have the boots really tight, and the, yeah. you know it was kind of pain. So I decided, you know, we live our lives in like ever decreasing circles. You are never going to go snowboarding again. So that's You've reduced it. So I have a belief every couple of years, you need to push this out to okay. grow as a person. Okay. Um, and so I decided to learn snowboard. Now, for those who ski, you have two legs to stand on for balance, and you have two edges to control yourself. And you can sure. do this as well. Hopefully not that. Yeah. But you can do this to control yourself. Um, but it is controlled falling. I mean, there's, you know, you're on ice, control falling. Yeah. So with snowboard, the difficulties are both legs are strapped together. You have one edge. Yeah. And you have to, like, you run out of mountain, you have to turn. <laughs> and to turn, your bias is, like, to pull back. Sure. But you actually have to push forward further down the hill or yeah. your edge will completely come off and you have no edge. Yeah. So it's terrifying. Yeah. And to me, I thought that was really good to do. I thought it was a, a good skill to learn and I actually enjoy it, but I do it infrequently enough, like once every two to three years, yeah. that it is equally terrifying every time I start because I, you know, I don't kind of remember which foot goes forward. I might <laughs> I not goofy, you know, and that kind of stuff. But so the first half day is is really bad. Um, but but you know if you're a young kid and I it's like the first day I'm back on, keep away from me because I'm just gonna I'm just yeah. gonna like oh 
Pass through you. Like, and, the yeah, first time you get off the lift after you haven't been on, you're just like, all right. Like I'm just, yeah, right? That first you're like, like, oh, you're please like don't someone fall. should invent a better solution than getting <laughs> off a lift with a snowball. <laughs> uh, I, it's, you know, it's frightening. I've definitely face planted off of a lift um, in the not too uh, <laughs> distant past. Uh, so I actually have an issue. I think this is, this is what I've uh, focused on for myself. I, if I'm attached to anything, if I'm clicked into anything, or if I don't have control over the thing that I'm doing, I'm infinitely more scared and it's an affront to my mortality. Uh, but if someone said, Hey Vic, take this car and drive it really fast around a track or do X, Y, and Z, like I can surf and skateboard. I just, when I get clicked into a surf, uh, a, a snowboard or skis, or if I'm on a roller coaster, I really, really dislike it. I just can't okay. do it. <laughs> can't do it. Uh, and, but I, your attention to your mortality and kind of, I, I think you probably one of the most self-aware people that I've, I've talked to. Uh, in a I really think my long kids time. would disagree with you on that, but really, <laughs> to them I'm I mean, Homer. To them I'm Homer Simpson who crushes beer cans with my belly. Fair, you know? fair, fair. Uh, but you, I mean, you do put a lot in of time and effort into kind of uh, your health and uh, and all of that. Uh, I hear you. You jump rope. So th- this is one of those things that I, you know. Uh, so with the pandemic coming on, yeah, um, I kind of said, well, sitting in my chair all day is probably not healthy. So <laughs> what can get me out of this? And so, you know, I, I went on Amazon. I bought a, you know, 15-buck uh, rope with a little counter on it because I'm lazy. And I started jumping rope. And, you know, it's amazing. I think every five steps, every three steps, I was stepping on the rope and, you know, I've, it's, I try to jump uh, about 1,200 jumps a day, which wow. is, well, it's about nine minutes. I mean, you know, maybe 10, 10 on a bad oh. and And I also have, I, I have a three-pound and a five-pound rope, and I try and do 100 jumps with a three-pound rope. But the five-pound rope is ridiculous. <laughs> I mean, like, like it's, you know, I'm thinking, should I get a four-pound? I'm like, no. Nah. So, um, you know, but, but, but a five pound rope is ridiculous. And if you can jump with it, good luck to you. But I feel like, you know, I'd destroy a wall if it hit it. Um, uh, so I try and do that and I try and do, uh, 20 pull-ups a day. Okay. Uh, but this is part of my thing that I said, you know, up to the age of 40, I did no exercise. (laughs) I read something, I read something in the economist that said, however much exercise you do in life, yeah. To maintain your waist, to maintain your metabolism, you have to step it up a little. Yeah. yeah. So about the age of 40, I got a wind-up watch. And you know, now I do a little bit more, and you know, and then hopefully in my you know 70s and 80s, I can do a little bit more. He's but running I, marathons. <laughs> yeah, maybe. No, I don't think marathons are particularly healthy for you. Um, it seems like so much expense, so much energy in such a short period of time. Right. But 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 yeah, I mean, I, I do think that as you get older, you should actually do more. And, and then about two years ago, I put myself on a, a regiment to say, I want to, before I die, be able to do a pull-up. 
because I see it in all the action movies, and I'm like, if there ever is a helicopter <laughs> and I have to jump for it, God, I don't want to just be the person who, who slips out after two, two <laughs> seconds. So it it took it take it, it you know, anyone who does this, they'll they'll laugh at this. But once you start doing pull-ups, yeah, you can't stop. Not because they're addictive, but your muscle memory is a, has a half-life of about three days. Mm. So if you stop, you will have to, you will, those muscles, whatever ones they are that you use, you will stop working and you won't be able to do it. So it, it's one of those things that, that, that you, you just, if you do it, you carry on doing it until you stop and then you won't ever do it again kind of thing. Yeah. Pull-up maintenance. Well, that maintenance. There you go. <laughs> I need to work on that. Uh, that's why I'm, I'm starting to get back on uh, get cardio and doing the Peloton. Uh, my wife got one for her birthday, and so that's cool. That's the next thing that we're doing. Um, so, you, so you got one for your wife's birthday. You mean? Yeah. So she she, <laughs> she actually I had been telling her to purchase it for a while because she was used to going to the gym, uh, and then the pandemic hit, and the spin classes that she used to uh go on you know stopped and the peloton was such a fantastic device and she just you know gave me pushback on it gave me pushback on it and then when she finally bought it uh she bought me a pair of shoes too so i've been on the peloton now uh try and get on like four or five times but you just realize i mean i was a athlete in college and and uh i was really just neglecting the cardio aspect of of things and so, so yeah i was not an athlete in college yeah. other than i played croquet for my college i, I was just croquet gonna say was, croquet was about and croquet by the way it's a mean nasty logical game oh my god yeah i mean the objective is to keep <laughs> the balls together and split your opponent's balls and the way people play it's yeah. i mean gosh it's one of the nastiest sports out there. <laughs> you have to tell us one of your uh, croquet mishaps. No, 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 no. But like the serious players have square mallets, not oh. round mallets. Not round mallets. Okay. Made from a certain wood from South America of a certain blah, blah. blah. I mean, like. A sycamore. Maybe. No, I don't no, know. That sounds too common or garden to be the right to be the right one. But it's it, Japanese it's, maple. It, the people who play this seriously, oh my gosh, there, there's like no quarter is given. So I, you play croquet, uh, you jump rope. You want to show the two gifts we sent you to hopefully keep you in shape um, at your <laughs> office there. <laughs> Not a five-pound jump rope. No, but. not a five-pound. But one does have a counter. We made sure it had a counter for you. That's right. So I, I got this. Yeah. Which I think one of my granddaughters will be inheriting. Lovely. Uh, and this which might might be the same. Yes. Oh, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely. So for those of you listening to the podcast, he's opening a child's jump rope, which, and now this should be a skip it, which is oh, one man. of those devices you can put around your ankle and jump around it. And it counts the amount 
of steps. We thought that would be funny since you love to jump rope and count your, your jumps. I guess this goes around here. Yes. So, <laughs> yes. you know, but look, but look, the, the interesting thing about jump rope or anything, Peloton or anything, is doing it every single day. Right. It's, yep. it's, not, it's not that, you know, you can do whatever on a given burst. But it's just doing it every day. Yeah, uh, you mentioned before we started recording uh, for all of the listeners and viewers out there. We had a, a great conversation about how you've been having the same omelet that you've been perfecting, uh, you know, since the pandemic. To be clear, it's not the very same omelet. Not the very. <laughs> yes. You've been you've been cooking the same uh, omelet. Same style. Uh, yes. So you've had two hundred or so of of these these omelets uh, from the time you started making them. Uh, what other uh, sort of things that you've adopted during the pandemic will you continue to do? What is the first thing now that bits and pieces are opening up that you can't wait to do? Um, talk a little bit about that, please. Run away from people when I see them up close? No. Um, <laughs> my hope is, as we come out of this, unless there's a Epsilon, I, I don't know my, my alphabet afterwards, Sigma variant or whatever, um, which you know, has a different fact pattern. But you know, my expectation is it's, in the US it's over, in Europe it'll be over in three months, in Asia over in six months. And we can get this behind us because of this amazing technology we have and all of the information systems we have, which are digitalized, which just enable us to stay on top of this in a way we couldn't do before. Mm. Um, so my hope is that, you know, we're back to normality, the people are comfortable eating in restaurants, the people are comfortable going to the movie theater and the like. And I think, They'll get comfortable because they see other people do it. But, you know, it's like you, you've got to get risk risk adjusted. The risk now is so tiny, particularly if you're vaccinated and even massively reduced if you're not because so many people around you are vaccinated, mm -hmm. um, uh, that I hopefully we can get back to normal sooner rather than later. And I think it'll be the roaring 20s. I think people will want to have a bias to live life a little larger, having spent a year, you know, living under a rock or in a cave, being a troglodyte, I think is the term. Um, <laughs> and so, so yeah, I mean, I, I hope that happens. Work, um, I don't know. I mean, some areas will go fully remote. Other areas will go hybrid. Other areas will go fully back. And my expectation is we'll try and get the best of both worlds. Um, depending on the industry you're in. Homes, I think people value their homes more than they valued before. I'm not talking in financial terms, but in terms of what space they want. Yeah. Right? You have a Peloton bike. You want to have a room, it's in. Unless you want it on your dining room table, you've got to have <laughs> somewhere else. And so, you know, working that out. So I think people, you know, Americans are criticized for wanting bigger houses than anyone else. Well, I think, I think house sizes are going to go up. Yeah. not down over time as as people realize they're spending more time and particularly if they're working from home part mm -hmm. yeah. um and then shopping it's you know it's ridiculous i bought a pair of shoes that i returned to macy's because um the little thing on the back broke the thing you do to put sure. 
you know, that little tab shoe, the back shoe loop. Yeah, yeah. Is that what it's called? Oh, uh, I don't know. We're gonna say yes. <laughs> I sounded smart though. The fine is the shoe loop. The shoe loop. So I, get, I go back there, and they're like, "Well, you've worn them. We can't take them back." And I'm like, "Of course, I wore them, but but." They presumed there's some warranty. Anyway, eventually they took them back and it took half now. And I'm like, with Amazon, you just put in the box, you drop it off at the UPS or Absolutely. Whole And so I I think if retailers don't make the shopping experience better, and mm-hmm. some do, but if if they don't make it better, the you know, the move to ordering stuff online, I think is just you know, going to go go up and up. The notion of I need to go and get a shirt will be, I'll just order five shirts on Amazon and which, you know, if it fits me when it turns up tomorrow or over the next couple of days, great. And I'll return the others. I think that's, I, th- I see that happening more and more. Um, so I think there'll be some real shifts that have come out of this about how people look at things and value things. Um, uh, but I think there'll be, I think the, the, Back half of this year and into next year, it's going to be one big party. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, let's let's begin with the the end segment that we like to call VC's drink. Uh, it's inspired in part by Stephen Colbert, but uh, also uh, you know a subset of questions from Chuck Klosterman's uh, book, Sex, Drugs, and Cocoa Puffs. So, are you ready to play? I'm ready to play. And we'll speed through these because we want to be uh, respectful of your time. And, we and I will speed it. on. So as you know, as you can see, I tend to talk in paragraphs. So I will Here, <laughs> Here we go. Here we go. Uh, Bree, do you want to start? Start us off. At long last, someone invents the dream VCR. This machine allows you to tape an entire evening's worth of your own dreams, which you can then watch at your own leisure. However, the inventor of the Dream VCR will only allow you to use this device if you agree to a strange caveat. When you watch your dreams, you must do so with your family and your closest friends in the same room. They get to watch your dreams along with you. And if you don't agree to this, you can't use the Dream VCR. Would you still do this? Absolutely not. I wouldn't want to watch my dreams myself. I mean, my God. <laughs> All right, that one was easy. Fantastic. That was that was that was quick. Uh all right, let's assume that you meet a rudimentary magician on the street and he can do five simple tricks. He can pull a rabbit out of his hat, he can make a coin disappear, he can turn the ace of spades into the joker card and two other relatively similar uh in the similar vein. Um but these are his only tricks and he can't learn any more. Uh, he can only do these five. It does, however, turn out that these five tricks he does are with real magic. It's not an illusion, and he can actually conjure the bunny out of the, the ether, and he can move the coin through space. Is And he's legitimately magical, but extremely limited in the scope and influence. Would this person be more impressive than Albert Einstein or less? Well, they'd be less impressive because even though the magic would be amazing to see, um, Albert Einstein's impact on humanity has been enormous. And the interesting thing, and it's difficult to really understand this, is his laboratory was his mind. He literally 
thought about things and said, based on my thoughts on this, this is the outcome. And then at the time, years later, decades later, very complex physical experiments were done, some involving spacecraft and other things. And, you know, his conclusions have generally been proven out in the physical world. You know, it's a theory. It's not a fact. Um, You know, Einstein's theory relatively special in general. But gosh, uh, what an impact on mankind he's had. Mm-hmm. And not, ju- not just in the physics world, but in, in the acceptance of brilliance as seen as a force for good. Fantastic. Bree, do you want to go to the next one? Defying all expectation, a group of Scottish marine biologists capture a live Loch Ness monster. And an almost unbelievable coincidence, a bear hunter in the Pacific Northwest shoots a Sasquatch in the thigh, thereby allowing zoologists to take the furry monster into captivity. These events happen on the same afternoon. That evening, the president announces he may have thyroid cancer and will undergo a biopsy this week. You are the front page editor of the New York Times. What do you play as the biggest story? Well, I mean, the front page can take all three stories. So now, now, <laughs> now, now we're ranking them. Um, probably New York Times is parochial. So the fact that the Loch Ness Monster is overseas means that probably doesn't even get to the front page. Um, <laughs> so now the question is, what's more interesting to people, Sasquatch or the president getting thyroid cancer? Uh, probably not the president. Okay. All right. Uh, here we go. You meet a wizard. There's a lot of magicians and wizards in these questions, apparently. Uh, but you meet a, a wizard in downtown Manhattan, and the wizard tells you that he can make you more attractive if you pay him money. When you ask how this process works, the wizard points to a random person on the street, and uh, you look at this random stranger. The wizard says, I will now make them a dollar more attractive. He waves his magic wand, uh, and ostensibly, this person does not change in appearance at all, as far as you can tell. But somehow, this person is suddenly a little bit more appealing. The tangible difference Despite the tangible difference being invisible to the naked eye, uh, you you believe that this person is vaguely sexier. Uh, but this wizard is asking you, okay, look, I can do this for you, but I can only do this for you once. You can only pay me once in one lump sum up front. How much, John Frankel, do you pay this wizard? Nothing. Nothing. I like that answer. Do you put on a hat while you while you pay him nothing? Uh, I probably put on this hat. Yeah. <laughs> Love it. Love it. Love it. Uh, Good one. Much more attractive now. <laughs> <laughs> so keep keep that hat on uh, <laughs> while I ask you something that's actually not a part of twenty the twenty three questions. Uh, in in recent news, obviously Richard Branson, Sir Richard Branson, uh, jettisoned himself into space 
for a brief moment in time uh, on his aircraft. And Elon Musk has now come out to say, hey, I've, I've paid for it and I'm going to be joining him uh, on Virgin Galactic. Uh, assuming money is not uh, an issue, um, do, you, do you take up Sir Richard Branson on a trip to uh, outer space? Uh, so the answer is no. Um, when I when I was at Goldman at one point, when Virgin Atlantic was early in its stage, um, uh, Rich Richard Branson at the time reached out to Goldman and said, "Why could you get like a dozen people from Goldman come and have lunch with me?" Hmm. So I went and had lunch with him at his house in London um, uh, amongst a group of people. I mean, he's a nice guy, but you know, he, 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 I don't, you know, I don't need to have lunch twice. And I remember uh, one of my kids, um, uh, I did this thing because I was flying back and forth from London all the time uh, uh, when I was at Goldman. And I would, once a year, I'd take one of my kids when they were a certain age with me. And so I took one with them and, and I, you know, I, I had a lot of mileage, so I upgraded the ticket. I told them we're going economy. And then we come to check in. And so I apologize, it's a long answer. No. Uh, and I, come to, <laughs> I come to check in and I go wink, wink to the, um, to the uh, woman behind the counter. And I go, you know, do you think we could get an upgrade? Is it possible? Right. And my son's looking at me and, so, and she goes, oh, Richard Branson upgraded you. Right. Wow. And so we go in the club lounge. I use the mileage. And who is in the club lounge but Richard Branson? So <laughs> I go over and I get a photo of my, my kid with him, and he's like, because he didn't believe me. He's like, you just have to go, no, look, here he is. You know? And so anyway, uh, yes, so those are my two Richard Branson stories. Yeah. But I, I don't need more Richard. You don't need more Richard. I, nice guy, done a lot of good things in the world. Yeah. I think getting space, you know, but him, I think all of these folks who are trying to reduce the cost and I apologize for that. Um, redu- reduce the cost of um, of um, of space travel by one, two, three orders of magnitude. I think is actually pretty good. You know, um, I think it's fascinating, and I think it's good for humanity for various reasons. Um, but uh, no, I don't need to be on the road, and I'm not sure my wife would let me. Yeah. Uh, well, I think that's very telling uh, as to the kind of person you are. It's really about the company you keep and your tribe. And that's that's pretty cool. We are uh, extremely fortunate to have had you for as long as we have. Uh, and we have one last present uh, for you to open. Uh, is it nearby you right now? I, I actually have it here. Fantastic. And I see that unlike the others, you have not opened it. <laughs> so this, this is, is actually going to be a total surprise for you. I am wondering what it is. Here we go. So, shall I open it? Yes, absolutely. Yes. Please. Okay. I'm very so, excited about this. So this is, this is so taped up. We should probably <laughs> tell a short story in the interim or maybe even a long story. Well, <laughs> speaking of a short story, uh, I heard that FF Ventures doesn't just stand for founder friendly. Can you give us the the behind the scenes scoop as to how it got its name? 
Yes, but the, I'm trying to think how I condense that in less than 10 minutes. Let me try. Okay. Um, my father was born in 1926. And so before the Second World War, and during the Second World War, he wanted to be a pilot, but he was very sickly. He had um, uh, bronchitis and the like, and they wouldn't let him be a pilot. So instead, um, he was part of, I think it was the AA, it's going gonna, it's gonna to sound like the, uh, uh, the ARP, I think was the term, but he would go to the top of buildings when the bombers came in to kind of like say where they were bombing. Hmm, so, dangerous. Yeah, they didn't bomb his building, it was fine. But, um, uh, and also they asked him during the war to run a radio manufacturing plant where everyone who worked in the plant was Swedish. And he didn't speak Swedish and they didn't speak English. So <laughs> there was, yeah, so yes. But that was, that was the Second World War. But he wanted to be a pilot. And so later in life, he got a share in a small Cessna plane, hmm. learned to fly and the like. And his friends, to celebrate him getting license, got him a flight bag because you didn't have electronics and you had paper flight plans and maps. And, like, you could look down and say, where am I? I think I'm there, right? And, um, and they gave him a leather bag and they bought vinyl letters to stick on the side that said, fly Frankel. Well. But they only bought lowercase letters. <laughs> and so it was fly Frankel with lowercase letters. So whenever my father or I saw something that could be alliterated with two lowercase f's, we would say, and with two lowercase f's. Uh, he unfortunately passed away um, uh, 21 years ago. And so, um, you know, in part, FF is sort of recognition of that sort of connection to my father. Um, but it also is this notion of really wanting to be founder friendly, albeit with two lowercase f's. So anyway, I got this. That is a good story. Oh, it's a great story. All right, here we go. Here we go. For those joining us oh. on audio only, he's <laughs> rummaging is... through a box. Let me have a look at this. So firstly, I think you've broken one of the cardinal rules of Patagonia which is you got a VC, a Patagonia vest. Um, <laughs> and this, this is, so let me just hold this up. Oh, wow. Look at that. That says, looks cool. Okay. And can I point out that the mallet is square? I told you that the people who <laughs> take this serious have square mallets. So <laughs> that might actually be the Croquet Association mallet. I mean, like logo. So this looks really good. Uh, wow. I'm not sure what this is. Not cashmere, but, you know, I'll pretend it is. Pretend. This is going to get a lot of mileage. And I really, I really appreciate it. He's beaming right now, by the way, for everyone that's only the joining way, us on the, audio. Every now and then, every now and then, one of our portfolio companies manages to do some kind of uh, sweater vest or something, but I never wear them because it feels so VC. It's, yeah. But this doesn't feel so VC, so this will get warm. So people <laughs> in the future wearing this will know where, will know where it comes from. And this pseudo affiliation to the Croquet Association, I will have to create a very colorful story around how I won this in some context. 
but this is very good and it fits me. We had such a great time with you today. Thank you so much. Um, as customary uh, for our guests, we'd love for you to toast us out uh, with any words of wisdom that you might have. Uh, maybe it's to uh, pump one of your portfolio companies. It's your 30 seconds. Wow. Um, gosh. So I'm going to fill up with lots of wows and goshes. Um I think any words of wisdom, words of wisdom, um, life is short. So be present, live in the present, enjoy the present. Don't get stuck in the past. Don't worry about the future um, because the present is all we have. Um, I'm not really going to pump up a stock, but we have a company, one of our portfolio companies just went public. Company's called Albert Baby Care. They have this, this little baby sock. And uh, you can now, you know, buy 100 shares if you want to, uh, ticket OWLT. The reason why I say this is it's a hell of a company. And I just love the idea as a consumer being able to buy shares in a company that I use and I like. And I think it's pretty cool because, like, like if, you know, if a company gone public was in some esoteric security thing, it's very difficult to feel connected. Sure. Gosh, this is warm. I'm gonna, I'm gonna love this. Um, <laughs> but, but you know, when it's a tangible product, I can see a lot of parents saying, you know, I just, I just want to be connected to that company that's helping keep my child safe. So I think that's pretty cool. Um, I'm not really trying to pump the stock. Maybe I'm. No, I'm not. Um, but, but I would check it out because I think it's a very special company, and what, and what they're doing is. Uh, uh, it's pretty amazing. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much again for your time, uh, all the wisdom that you imparted uh, to us. It was a great conversation. And we look forward to having you back on when you do receive that uh, onesie, the tuxedo onesie. And <laughs> we can have some fun with that for sure. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you for having me on. It was a blast. And now I'm going to go and... Uh, uh, show this to my wife. Perfect. <laughs> Cheers. Cheers. Enjoy this episode of Drinks with the VC. Please be sure to hit those like, share, and subscribe buttons on Apple, Spotify, Google, YouTube, or wherever you enjoy your favorite podcasts.